Well, I was not here with you last Sunday. Uh, I missed you, uh, but I did have a good and encouraging time at Christ Proclamation Church in Windsor, Connecticut, uh, one of our sister churches, one of our longtime support churches. I preached about faith from Hebrews chapter 11 uh, to the brothers and sisters there, and they send their warm greetings and love to you uh, from Christ Proclamation in Windsor, Connecticut to you here. I am grateful uh, for Richie Pendred coming and preaching from Ephesians chapter 2 in the first 10 verses, the first half of Ephesians, right in our series. I know that he, he did a good job for you. You were in good hands. Uh, the title of Richie's sermon was Made Alive. The title of my sermon this morning in the second half of Ephesians chapter 2 is Brought Near. Um, that, that really kind of sums up Ephesians chapter 2, which splits nicely in the middle. It is about being made alive in Christ and is being uh, made about being brought near in Christ. In chapter 1, let's just give a little bit of groundwork. In chapter 1 of Ephesians, Paul tells us all about God's glorious grace towards those who believe. He breaks into, after that, he just breaks into prayer. He, uh, he's, he's so glad uh, about what he, has, what he has spoken about, the glories of God's grace and his plan for us in Christ, that he just breaks into prayer that the church would understand the hope that we have in him. The treasure that we are to him and his power at work in us, which is the very power that raised Christ from the dead. And that idea of power, the power of God, leads Paul into chapter 2. That, that idea of the power of God that raised Christ from the dead that's active in us just flows right over into chapter 2 where Paul describes how the power of God to raise Christ from the dead is the same power of God that brought sinners who were dead in their trespasses to spiritual life in Christ. That's what Richie preached about last Sunday. And I want us to read Ephesians chapter 2. I want us to read all of it so that we get the made alive part and the brought near part all together. So listen as I read along. This is the word of God. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the circumcision by what is called the uncircumcision, excuse me, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, 
alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure is being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of God. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you would indeed grant us understanding. That that understanding would lead us to know you and to love you. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable to you, pleasing to you. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So these two passages, if you will, in Ephesians chapter 2 are parallel passages. If you notice, they kind of run along a similar line. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, are about what God has done for every believer in the church according to his electing love. We were dead in our sin. Now we are alive in Christ by the grace of God. He has recreated us and employs us in good works. Verses 11 to 22 are about what God is doing with Gentiles in the church according to his great plan and purpose. Gentiles were far off from God and far off from the people of God. Now, Christ has brought us near to God and the people of God. In fact, he has made us, Jew and Gentile, one new man, the church, the true temple in which his spirit dwells. So there's this idea. You were really bad off, but Christ made you alive through his blood, by the grace of God, do good works. In the second part, you were far away. The, the Jews worship God. You Gentiles, not Jews, were far away in a bad place. But Christ has brought you near by his blood, by God's grace. So be his church filled with his spirit. You see the parallelism as we work through the two things? They're parallel passages. Let me read again our passage for today. This is what we're focusing on, based in starting in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, 
alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. It's the first part. Verse 13, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Repetition is helpful. Repetition is helpful. Here's the theme if you want to follow along with the sermon outline in your bulletin. Christ is the very peace of God who by his blood has brought us peace with God and peace with one another, having made us one new man in the presence of God by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. So we begin with at one time. At one time, you Gentiles were far off. It's important for us to understand the relationship between Jew and Gentiles. Gentiles are every other people group than the Jews. They're they're all of the pagan nations in the world that are not the Jews. It's important for us to recognize that the relationship between Jews and Gentiles in ancient times, there's, there's a separation between them. You get that from the passage, don't you? There is, in our eyes, no iron curtain No political barrier, no color barrier, black, white, red, or yellow. There's no class distinction, social, economic, or you might think the caste system in India. There's no national or geographic differences that we know of today that compares with the chasm that separated Jews from Gentiles in Paul's day. It was that big. In Psalm 2, Think about this. In Psalm 2, the psalmist asks, why do the nations rage against the Lord and against his anointed? The Gentiles are raging against the people of God. Genesis chapter 3, let's back up a little further, tells us that because of our sin, from the time of the fall, there would be enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And that battle will rage until... Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, God puts all of his enemies underneath Christ's feet like a footstool. You see, there's a battle raging between Jew and Gentile. There's enmity between Jew and Gentile until God brings to conclusion his plan to unite all things in heaven and on earth under Christ Jesus, which means that the plan of God, somewhere in there, This Jew-Gentile separation is going to have to be mended. It's going to have to be mended. So the two passages are parallel in structure, and they're complementary in content. Verses 1 to 10 are about God bringing sinners into his family. And verses 11 to 22 are about God bringing Gentiles into his kingdom. 
They complement one another. Let's remember that Paul is writing to a predominantly Gentile church in Ephesus. Okay, this is in Asia Minor. This isn't anywhere near Jerusalem. Uh, this is, this is a, a church plant from Paul's gospel ministry as Christ's apostle to the Gentiles. He preached the gospel in Ephesus. People came to saving faith and a church was formed. So when he's addressing Gentiles in writing to a church that's all Gentile for all practical purposes, uh, the Gentiles, he's addressing them about their Gentileness, but he's not singling them out from the Jews as if the Jews are another half of the church. There are only maybe a handful of Jewish believers in the church. So why then? Why does Paul want these Gentile Christians to know and understand these things about God? Is it because the church is split into competing factions? That the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians are split against one another and that the the unity of church is breaking down? No. We don't read any of that in Ephesus. There's no rebuke. There's no chastisement. There's no correction of false teaching. Not like there is in Paul's letter to the Romans, where there is definitely a Jew and Gentile loggerhead inside the church. And Paul writes to address it, and he calls people out. But that's not happening here in in his letter to the Ephesians. There's just this wonderful teaching about the plan of God. So that we, because we're a predominantly Gentile church, would be filled with affection and devotion to God who has made us alive in Christ and has brought us near in Christ. That's Paul's purpose. This makes total sense. This makes total sense. Because Paul just prayed at the end of chapter 1 that we would know the immeasurable greatness of the power of God. And so now in chapter 2, just as Paul wants us to know the power of God in our salvation so that we would appreciate it and be thankful for it that we have been made alive, Paul also wants us to know the power of God in uniting Jew and Gentile in bringing peace to this great enmity chasm and, and united us in one new man so that we would appreciate it and be thankful for it and walk it out. So that we would recognize ourselves, the church, as the together people of God filled with his Holy Spirit. So that we would not see the church with merely our eyes, but with hearts of faith, enlightened by knowing God. Paul is providing some of the answer to his prayer, that we would know God more, and that our hearts would be enlightened, and that we would understand the immeasurable greatness of his power to do things like save people and unite people. And so Paul begins in verse 11 with the word therefore. What comes next in verse 11 is building upon what came before. That's why we read all of chapter 2. What's happening beginning in verse 11 uh, is connected to what was happening in chapter 2, which ended at at verse 10. Paul is going to talk about the horizontal, if you will, reconciliation between Jew and Gentile, between sinners and the church, given their vertical reconciliation with God, which is what he talked about in the first ten verses. The resurrection power of God that reconciled sinful you with holy God in Christ has also reconciled you, Jew and Gentile, different peoples, to one another in Christ. Same power from the same God who is the same Father to Jews and Gentile believers, everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ which should 
absolutely blow us away. Because it looks precisely like the plan of God to unite all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. When we read this chapter, we should say, holy moly, look! The plan of God's happening! The power of God's at work! People are being saved and baptized and brought into the kingdom and brought into the church and indwelled by the Holy Spirit. What the Bible says God's going to do, he's doing. What no other power can do, he's bringing about by his power. We should be absolutely blown away by that. Gosh, where's the evidence of God in this world? I wonder what God wants to do today. He's doing it, and we're seeing it. Hallelujah. Paul writes, therefore, remember. See, Paul is using the same grammatical structure that he used before. You will rejoice in having been made alive in Christ by grace, through faith, when you remember your former state, that you were dead, dead, dead in your transgressions and sins against God. And so, you believing Gentile, you will rejoice that you have been brought near to the promises and the people of God when you remember your former state. That you were far off. That you were separated. And that you were alone in this world. And so how does Paul go on to show us our aloneness? Well, you've noticed as we've read this twice now that Paul uses a lot of Old Testament imagery. Beginning with the term circumcision. In the Old Testament, male Jews were identified by physical circumcision because it was the mark of the Abrahamic covenant. Here's the mark. Notice that Paul describes circumcision as a mark made by human hands. He was, he was careful to do that, almost parenthetically. So it's, it's limited. Circumcision is limited as a physical sign. It's, it's a mere fleshly sign made with human hands. To truly be a son of Abraham, even in the Old Testament, one had to have a circumcised heart of faith. You know, just, just a reminder from everybody, because sometimes we get, we get a little mistaken here, we get a little confused between Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant. Everybody, everybody, Jew, Gentile, in Old Testament days or New Testament days, is saved by faith. Faith, faith, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ alone. It's the same for all time. Faith alone in Christ alone is how sinners come to be saved. That's it. There's no other way. Nonetheless, the Jews proudly called themselves the circumcision, and they referred to Gentiles as the uncircumcision. It was a term of derision. It was their way of saying, you have no part of the promises of God, or our God, the God of Abraham. And the Gentiles did not. The Gentiles were pagans who worshipped idols made with hands. Can you imagine that? You grab a stone and you chisel away at it and you say, you're my God. You grab a piece of wood and you whittle a while and you say, you're my God. That's what Gentiles did. But you see, both Jews and Gentiles need a heart circumcised by faith in God. Everyone is dead in their trespasses and sins against God and everyone needs a Savior and there's only one. 
So what does it mean to be the uncircumcision? Just as there was a litany of sins that described our spiritual deadness in verses 1 to 3, our Gentile status is described with a litany of separations beginning in verse 12. We're alienated from the people of God. I'm just going to go ahead and assume that, uh, that we're all of Gentile descent and that this is speaking directly to us, a Gentile church. If you happen to be of, if you happen to be of Jewish uh, descent, that's great. Uh, but you know, the, the, the line is, is far less now than it was then. I'm just going to talk to us as the Gentile church. While the Jews were called the people of God, and they were, they were the commonwealth of Israel, we Gentiles were precisely not the people of God. Not chosen. Not worshiping him. Not wearing the sign. We were aliens to the kingdom of God. We were strangers, Paul says, to the promises of God. The Jews were party to covenants that God made with them that promised them blessings, the blessing of salvation, the blessing of land, the blessing of his presence, the blessing of prosperity. We have no claim to any of those promises. Paul says they have no hope. You know, I, I love fall. I just do. I love the cool, crisp days. I love Julie's apple crisp, maybe because it's my mom's recipe. I love her homemade pumpkin pie. That's her recipe. I love college football games and the World Series. I love the breathtaking fall colors. But the colorful leaves fall to the ground and they turn brown. The apple trees go dormant and they stop producing fruit. The grass withers and the flower fades. Isaiah 40. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. Ecclesiastes 3. So what's to become of you? What hope is there for you? When a time to die comes, what hope is your money then? What hope is your college education then? What hope is your hobbies and leisure and pleasures then? What hope is there for you when you're dead, dead, dead in your transgressions and sins against God? For it is appointed once for man to die, and then the judgment. Hebrews 3. What's to become of you? What's to become of you without God in this life? Here you are, in the world that God created. Here you are, living the life that God gave you. And here you are, in your life and in that world without him. The one being who really matters, you don't have. The one relationship upon which the life he gave you in the world he created depends. You're without him. Without God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who chooses and adopts 
sinners in Christ, who redeems and forgives sinners in Christ, who lavishes his grace and calls us his treasured possession and seals us with his Holy Spirit. All in Christ, you don't have him. If that's you this morning, I would appeal to you. I would appeal to you to turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. You see, today is the day in which salvation can be had. It won't always be this day. But today's the day. All who call on the name of Christ will be saved. All who come to him, he will in no wise cast out. If you come to him in repentance and faith, he will not reject you. He's pleading with your heart right now. Come to me, all who labor or are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Matthew chapter 11. And you will hear these words with new ears because all of us at one time did not have him. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You remember the old hymn, it says, there's power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of of the Lamb. It was on the cross that Jesus suffered and poured out his lifeblood in a sacrificial death to pay for our redemption. The author of the book of Hebrews explains it well, saying, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So you see, both Jew and Gentile need a better sacrifice. Both Jew and Gentile need a a better sacrifice and a better covenant, a better promise. And we have one in the new covenant. He goes on to say, But as it is, Christ appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Here is what Paul wrote to the Romans on this same subject. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For as while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Yes. The only way for sinners, Jew or Gentile, to be brought near to God is by the sin-atoning blood of Jesus Christ. By the blood of Christ, the, the litany of separations between Jew and Gentile are reconciled in Christ. They're mended. They're reconciled in Christ because reconciliation means peace. Look at verse 14. For he, Christ himself, is our peace, who has made us both one has broken down and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility 
by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Look, this is the, these are the focal verses of the passage. This is what Jesus did. Here's, here's the engine that drove all of this. Here's the power of God on display. One of God's promises to the Jews comes from Isaiah chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and his name shall be called Prince of Peace. You see, Jesus is that Prince of Peace. He's the embodiment of peace. He's the personification of peace. And Paul tells us in his letter to the Colossians, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Because Christ is peace, all those who are made alive in Christ receive his peace. The power of God in Christ is the power to reconcile men to God, that vertical relationship, and to one another who are in Christ. How can this be? In what ways have Gentiles been brought near? Well, Jesus has in his flesh broken down the dividing wall of hostility. There was literally a wall that separated Jews from Gentiles at the, at the point of the courtyards meeting outside of the temple of God. It was a physical barrier that restricted Gentiles from even approaching God. Jesus has, symbolically, in his flesh, broken down that wall so that Gentiles can now draw near to God. That wall was there according to the Mosaic law and its holiness codes, but Jesus has fulfilled the holiness requirements for all who believe in him. Abolish in the ESV, it's not the right word. He has set aside or abrogated the old covenant law and replaced it with his new covenant. All believers are under the law of Christ now, the law of love. He did this in his flesh. He did this in his body, in his sacrificial, sin-atoning death on the cross, where he paid our ransom with his blood. This is the power of God in Christ that has brought us near. Why? That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two and so making peace. All who are united in Christ are united to one another in Christ. We have peace in him who is our peace. The chasm of enmity between Jew and Gentile is mended in Christ by the immeasurably great power of God. You know, we can build bigger engines and bigger machines and more powerful robots, but we can build nothing that has the power to change the heart of a person. God has that power. We can build nothing with our hands. We can do nothing in our flesh that can undo our transgressions against the holy God. In Christ, God has that power. By his saving blood shed for us. 
to make payment for our sin. Not his. He was sinless. To make payment for our transgressions. To redeem us. To redeem us from the destiny of hell which we deserve. And to bring us near to him. That's the power on display right here. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two and making peace. Do you want peace in this world? Do you want peace in this nation? Do you want peace in your life? Turn to Christ, who is our peace, and you will have it. Christ is the Prince of Peace who put an end to our hostility towards God and towards one another in his body. He, his body took the hostility. His, his body bore the curse. He shed his blood. On the cross, Jesus, remember, the seed of the woman, crushed Satan's head, the seed of the serpent, and now we have peace. We've been united in Christ, which is a display of the power of God, bringing about the plan of God to unite all things under Christ. The plan's working. God's working it. And now that we are one body, which is Christ's body, the church, we have access in one spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, to God, who is our Father. We're united in the blessed Trinity. It's just glorious. Let me look at verse 19. So then... So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we've been made members of the household of God. That's why we can call him Father. No longer strangers and aliens. Instead, in Christ, we belong to God in this world and in the next. We are no longer traitors in open rebellion, but citizens of his kingdom. We are no longer strangers, but brothers and sisters in the family of God. The former outsiders have been made insiders. And we're built upon the word of God. Not just Jew and Gentile, but every people. People from every tribe and tongue and nation who believe in Christ Jesus are now one new man in Christ. Jesus has preached peace to us and Jesus has accomplished peace for us in his death, burial, and resurrection. This is the good news of the gospel. Paul likens the church to a building that's built upon the word of God. The true words of Christ's prophets and apostles set in scripture for us. The foundation is true because Jesus Christ is the true cornerstone. You understand how this works. First you set the true cornerstone in place, right? Which puts everything at direct 90 degree angles so that the walls will be then set in place. Jesus is the cornerstone, the true and perfect cornerstone, so that what he has told the apostles to say and they have said is true. And so the foundation is true. In Christ. The church's one foundation is indeed Jesus Christ our Lord. As we've sung. The very living word of God. 
You know, this is Paul's admonition to the church in Corinth. According to the grace of God given to me, remember, Paul was Christ's apostle to the Gentiles, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple, he says to the church. Paul's making the same application here. More than a house, the household of God is growing into a temple. Christ is joining us together in a holy temple in Christ. The temple is where God dwells with his people. When you hear temple, I don't think you should think worship first. I think you should think presence. This is how God dwelled with his people. In the tent of meeting, in the tabernacle, in the temple. The temple was a Jewish temple for God to dwell with his Old Testament people, but now, you Gentiles are not only allowed to enter, but you are, you are being built into the very temple of God. Turn with me to, to 1 Peter chapter 2. And find verse 4. Look at these words. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, that's describing Christ, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, the power of God that brings the peace of God brings more than just the end of hostility, the removal of enmity. It brings the presence and the prosperity of God to his people. That's our understanding of the peace of God. Just as each born-again believer is indwelled by the Holy Spirit, so too the church is filled by the Holy Spirit. God dwells in his people in the church. And he brings the prosperity of holiness to us in our shared lives together with one another. All who are in Christ are the temple of God indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And so here's the challenge for us. We need to not take for granted our understanding of the church. This that Paul has taught us. I think it's easy for us to just go, church is church. Church is church. Sometimes I like it, sometimes I don't. This is God's understanding of his people. 
a temple in which he dwells by his Holy Spirit. And we know this by the word of God. Christ, our cornerstone, is our truth. See, we need to fight the temptation to see the church by sight and instead to see the church with a heart of faith because that's what Paul has been praying would happen to us. The way to do that, then, is to pray. To pray just as Paul has prayed. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Because that is the same power that has made us alive in Christ, has joined us together in one new man, and has brought us near to God. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your grace. We praise you for your electing love. We worship you, our Heavenly Father. Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. He is indeed having reconciled us to God and reconciled us to one another, our very peace. That by his blood, he's bringing us home. All who would believe. And so we praise you. And we glorify your holy name. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen.